0: got two things you should be grateful for. I don't know how you woke up and and what your emotions were when you got up. And some of you are like, oh no, morning came. I got two things for you. One, air conditioning. Sometimes it's the small things in life that we're reminded how grateful we ought to be. The second one is we have a special guest with us. His name is Rich Stearns. You may not know him yet. But what I think you do know about the church and what we've been doing over the course of a few years now, if we've been reaching into northern Zambia and helping a very particular area get the kids in that area, get, get them sponsored and taken care of. And so if you want to nerd out on all the information, there's, there's videos online that we've got through, through our sources that, that you can go watch what we've been doing for years. But there was a, an idea that perhaps the, the very leader of World Vision could visit us and talk to us even more definitely about what they do and and the heart of World Vision and so with us today we have that guy and so uh, let's give him a warm welcome Thank you. Thanks. and so I, I want us to jump right into it and, and really get to I want everyone to get to know you because you really are like behind the scenes a great guy uh, and, and it's not a facade it really is great uh, but but you Obviously, had a life pre-World Vision, and most of us don't know about it. So if you wouldn't mind just kind of helping us know, maybe just pre-World Vision, so we can get to know you.
1: Well, thanks a lot, David. And uh, just let me say, it's really a privilege to be at your church. Uh, We so appreciate your partnership in Zambia, making a difference for so many kids and families there. So we're, we're grateful for your heart. Uh, And it's great to be in South Dakota, even (laughs) though it was like the hottest day in 60 years uh, yesterday. But I did get to go to Mount Rushmore, so uh, crossed it off my bucket list. And uh, I don't have much time left, so i got to cross these things off my bucket list. Um, Just maybe frame my my life before World Vision with uh, two two defining moments for me. Um, We often have these defining moments. We don't know they're defining moments sometimes until we look back on them. But... um, so I grew up in Syracuse, New York, upstate New York, where uh, we get 10 feet of snow every year. So we had our weather issues as well. And um, I grew up kind of in a, a broken home, alcoholism, foreclosure on our house, uh, uh, divorce. Uh, so not a great start in life, but I managed to get into uh, Cornell University, and I believed that education was going to be my way out to a better life. My parents had never been, uh, never finished high school. so. Uh, this was a big deal for me to go to college. But by the time I was a senior, you know, I was feeling pretty good about myself and confident. And uh, it was one month before graduation and uh, I got fixed up on a blind date. You ever been on a blind date? They're horrible, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Uh, This one actually turned out to be uh, life-changing. And um, first of all, let me show you a picture of me around the time of the blind date. So, you know, (laughs) I want you to imagine you're a young woman and you walk into this date and you're greeted by that, <laughs> kind of hard to resist, I know, uh, <laughs> twisted steel and sex appeal right there, mm-hmm. and uh, so that was me on this blind date, and I was, uh, and then the young lady that, uh, that, that met me on that date uh, is Renee, and uh, uh, Beauty and the Beast, you know, I've heard it all, You know, you, you know, come up with your metaphor, but... Um, but here was the, the face off here. I was a senior. She was a freshman. I was from New York. She was from California. I was an atheist. She was a born again Christian. Um, we couldn't have been more different. It was kind of a clash of worlds when we came together. And I was about a month from graduation, figured I had nothing to lose and, you know, go out on a blind date with this girl. And, uh, I remember asking her on that date, um, kid, what are you going to be when you grow up? I was kind of talking down to her because I was 22 and she was 19. And uh, she said, oh, I'm going to help the poor. I said, really, you're going to help the poor? And she said, yep, I'm going to become a lawyer. I'm going to law school. I'm going to become a legal services attorney, and I'm going to help the poor. And I said, well, that's really noble of you. That's a great thing. And she said, well, what about you? What are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to get my MBA. I, I was accepted at the Wharton School uh, for the next fall. Uh, I'm going to get my MBA and become a CEO and make a lot of money. And she said, what a pathetic life goal <laughs> to make money for yourself. You know, what a selfish person you must be. So it, it kind of devolved from there, you know, the, the blind date. And at one point, literally in the date, she reached into her purse and she pulled out this little booklet. It was Campus Crusade's Four Spiritual Laws. She had been trained to share the gospel, and she looked me in the eyes with her beautiful blue eyes, and she said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And I said, you got to be kidding. I've never had this happen on a date before, you know, that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. And what followed was uh, probably an hour-long conversation about life and faith and meaning and all of those things. But again, I was an atheist. I said, look, I don't believe in the Easter bunny. I don't believe in Santa Claus. Uh, and so we parted that night. Um, she was probably quite relieved uh, that the date was over, uh, but somehow there was a spark between us, and, and I kind of knew where she studied on campus, so the next day or two I kind of managed to show up there, and you know we started to see each other a little bit and have more of these conversations. Um, So let me fast forward, so we we actually started dating. Uh, It was improbable, because I was going away to school in Pennsylvania the next uh, fall, and long-distance relationship. Uh, And every time we talked about faith, we'd have a big argument, and it was awful, and we felt bad about ourselves, and so probably November of that next year, uh, we had one of these arguments, and she finally said, you know, you're gonna have to choose, uh, or I said to her, you're gonna have to choose, it's me or God, can you imagine saying that? and she said, well, you just made my choice very easy. She said, I choose God. And, uh, and we broke up. And it was, it was hard because we really did care for each other. So what happened to me? I, I thought, how did I lose the love of my life to a guy that died 2,000 years ago? I mean, how did this happen, you know? Uh, and, and I started to read books about the Christian faith because I, I didn't believe in it. And... Uh, You know, and I started with John Stott, and I moved on to C.S. Lewis. I read books about comparative religion, philosophy, apologetics. And uh, about six months later, I had read 50 or 60 books on the Christian faith. And when I finished the last one, I remember getting down on my knees, and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do right now, but I have become convinced that Jesus Christ was your son, and he died for my sins, and I want to live the rest of my life for you, but help me, because I don't know what to do next. You know, amen. And, uh, <laughs> and I stood up, and I dusted myself off, and I looked around, and the world had not changed color or anything. I didn't see a white light. But I knew that something was different, and uh, that was more than 40 years ago. And I can honestly say I have never looked back and had one doubt about that decision since, as uh, we're often told it's not a leap into the darkness it's a leap into the light and so i became a christian committed my life to the lord renee and i got back together we got married had five children and a dog named snickers and lived happily ever after (laughs) so uh that's the early story of our lives and between our one story i I need to tell when when we were engaged renee came to me and said we have to go register at the department store for our china our crystal or silver I was this new idealistic Christian, I said, I got indignant. I said, as long as there are children starving in the world, we are not going to buy china crystal and silver. It's too expensive, it's opulent, it's over the top. And she was like, really? You know, what have I created here? A monster, you know, he's uh, got this new Christian faith he's beating people over the head with. And uh, so we didn't register. We got the dopeest wedding presents ever. Uh, Nobody knew what to get us. You know, today you register for yoga lessons, Pilates, GoPro cameras, things like that. You know, China's dead. Um, So now I wanna fast forward. So my career, she became a legal services attorney to help the poor. She went to Boston College Law School. Uh, I got a job with Parker Brothers Games. They literally paid me to play board games and play with Nerf balls. Uh, and even video games toward the end of my tenure there. But I I spent nine years at Parker Brothers, and I did become the CEO of that company. Uh, I then went on from Parker Brothers to become the CEO of, guess what, Lennox, Fine China, and Crystal. (laughs) You can't can't make this stuff up. Um, So now I want to talk about the second life-changing moment, which was a phone call. I was president of Lennox, sitting in my impressive corner office, driving my corporate Jaguar to work. And the phone rang, and it was an executive recruiter who said his name was Rob, and he'd been hired by World Vision, the international Christian charity, to find a new president for their United States uh, office. And so Rob and I talked. Uh, I told him, actually, Renee and I have been donors to World Vision for 15 years at that point, and um, because we really believe in the mission of the organization, and, and we give to it uh, generously. and. Um, And I said, this is an important job. And I said, I don't know who you're going to find to do this job because you're looking for, like, Mother Teresa in a business suit uh, who's got corporate CEO experience and is willing to travel like Indiana Jones, you know, around the world. And and I said, I don't know where you're going to find somebody like that, but I'll pray about it and think about people that I know because I really want this organization to have the right person. And he said, of course, as they always do, well, Rich, what about you? You know, and I said, me... Uh Did you not listen when I said i 'm running a luxury goods company selling well you know selling expensive things to the wealthy i 'm not qualified i 've never been to Africa. I know nothing about poverty. I have no theological background. this is a christian organization i 've never done fundraising uh, and besides i 'm not interested or available, but other than that i 'm the perfect candidate uh and uh So he tried to persuade me to have dinner with him. I said, look, it's a waste of time. You know, it's not going to happen. I don't want to waste your time. Um, And then he asked me a different question, and it was one of these life-changing questions. He said, Rich, are you willing to be open to God's will for your life? And it kind of stopped me in my tracks. And, And I remember kind of hearing God's voice during that phone call. There was a long pause. And I, I felt like I heard God say, Rich, do you remember that young man so many years ago who said he wouldn't buy fine china or crystal because there were starving children in the world? Uh, I want you to look at the, look in the mirror, Rich. Look at what you've become. Um, but if, if that young man is still in there somewhere, I have a job that I'd like you to consider because there's still hungry children in the world. And uh, so after... Kind of processing that, I I said, Rob, I said, well, all right, I I will have dinner with you, but I'm telling you, this is not going to happen. I'm pretty sure this is not God's will for my life. And so it was kind of a defining moment over the next few months. I I met with Rob, and he convinced me to throw my hat in the ring. I was convinced I'd never get the job. Um, And they picked me, you know, they picked me at the end. And I know you're talking about purpose the last few weeks. And this was one of those moments where... You know, God was calling back some of my promises. He said, "When you knelt in that room, in you know, as a young man, and committed to live your life for me, uh, what I meant, what you meant by that, is that you would go where I called you, you would do what I asked you to do, you would respond to my leading." And uh, so now I'm calling in that claim that you made. I'm calling that in. And uh, I wasn't a, a hero. I was kind of a coward. I, I, I turned the job down before I finally accepted it, but. In 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 May of uh, that year, 1998, I resigned my job at Lennox, handed in the keys to my Jaguar. That really hurt. Um, uh, In June, I started with World Vision. In July, our 10-bedroom house on five acres went on the market. It was built in 1803. It was kind of a it was like living in a museum. It was our dream house. Uh, and in August, I was in uh, the middle of the jungles of Uganda at ground zero in the AIDS pandemic. Talk mm-hmm. about culture shock. But over the last 18 years, God has taken me on an adventure that is almost uh, priceless in a walk with the poor and uh, getting up every morning knowing that the work that World Vision is doing is changing the world and it's changing the lives of millions of people.
0: Yeah, I love your story. Uh, that I, I remember... Uh, meeting you not in person but at a conference from afar and learning about this book that you wrote, The Hole in Our Gospel. And so I, uh, I'm at a conference course. I buy the book and then I see how big the book is. And I was like, oh no, uh, <laughs> 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 did I overcommit? <laughs> but this is one of those books that I, and I'm, I'm not doing this because he's here. I've actually told you guys about this book before, The Hole in Our Gospel. It will grab a hold of your soul in the most beautiful way. But this, is, this was my first exposure to you, and I would guess that the message in this book is linked to what you guys do at World Vision. I think it'd be good for the church to hear the message that you intended to come across.
1: Well, on the cover of this book, there's a question, and it says, what does God expect of us? And I take about 300 pages to try to answer that question. What does God expect of his followers, his church, And you know, I've been exposed early in my Christian life to what I call the fire insurance gospel. You know, if we could just get people to pray the sinner's prayer, uh, we can get them saved, and then they've got a fire insurance policy, which most people put in their drawer, knowing that I'm saved now, and then they go back to the party. They go back to life as it was before, and there aren't a lot of changes in their lives. And that is not the gospel that I read about in the scriptures. I read about a gospel that calls us to give our lives everything. Everything we are, everything we own, we give it to the Lord. Uh, we lay it down at his feet. Uh, we sign over the title deeds to him. Uh, and we're the stewards and he's the owner. And, uh, and, and the, the gist of the book is that the, the whole gospel, W-H-O-L-E, is a vision for changing the world. Um, you know god called us to a revolution in the world to take the good news of the forgiveness of sins through jesus christ to every nation of the world but not just the good news not just pray the sinner's prayer get the fire insurance policy but he wants world changing people he wants us to love as he loves to see the world as he sees the world uh, to go into the world uh, into the brokenness of the world and there's a metaphor i really love that has to do with uh, our white blood cells and Most of you probably know that our white blood cells are the ones that rush to any infection or wound that we have. So it's part of our immune system, and if we get a cut or an injury or an infection, the white blood cells are like an army marching to the source of the pain and fighting that infection, trying to heal the body. I think that's what the church is meant to be in the world. We're meant to go into the world's brokenness, the brokenness in Rapid City, South Dakota, the brokenness in our nation, our government, academia, business, uh, and then the brokenness in the world. Wherever people are hurting and broken, uh, we're supposed to be like those white blood cells that go as healers, as rebuilders, repairers, redeemers, uh, first sharing the good news that God loves you and you're forgiven. You're forgiven. He's, He's wiped away your sins but now God wants you to join the revolution. He wants you to go into the world and, and claim it for him and, and live according to his values and, and demonstrate his love to your neighbor. And, and so this is a call to action. This book is a call for the church to put the gospel back together again, to embrace the wholeness of the mission that Christ gave us in the world and to go out there as revolutionaries and, 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 and take the world by storm. See, and that's what we love about
0: World Vision. So when World Vision goes into a place and environment, your approach, I think, is unique and extremely healthy. Uh, will you explain to everybody your approach when you go to a place? Uh, do you just do one thing or how holistic is it? I think it would be good for us to hear.
1: Yeah, so I want you to, um, I want you to think about a, a puzzle, a jigsaw puzzle, because I often tell people global poverty is a complicated puzzle. Most of you would agree with that. Um, you've got a community in the middle of Africa and they're desperately poor and they lack everything. They have no clean water, they don't have enough food to eat, they have no access to health care or safe childbirth, uh, their educational system is broken, they have no economic opportunity. I mean they're broken and flat on their backs uh, and, and often there's a sense of hopelessness and resignation that life Life for our children will be worse than it was for us, and life for their children will be worse than it was for them. And, um, and World Vision comes into this hopelessness believing that in those people, in that community, they're all made in the image of God, and they have as much creativity and entrepreneurship. They have as many ideas as we do. They've just never had the opportunity to to bring those out because they lost the birth lottery. They were born uh, in, in a difficult place, And we won the lottery by most of us being born here or having an opportunity to live here where there's there's so many uh, opportunities for us so world vision goes in we look at poverty as an ecosystem that is a puzzle of many pieces and you can't just do one piece like food you know even if you had all the food you wanted to eat in the world but you had to walk five miles to get putrid water that made you sick if there was no health clinic and no knowledge of health or disease or healing uh, if there was no education for your children, if there was no economic opportunity for your family, you would still be poor. So we learned a long time ago that you have to work in all of those areas of the puzzle. You've got to bring all the pieces to solve the puzzle. And we do it with, a, with an approach that I, it's simply summed up by we don't give people handouts, we give people a hand up. Because we've learned that... Uh, communities have to solve their own problems they have to learn to stand on their own two feet they have to organize themselves and when they do that they have tremendous pride and dignity that they can support themselves they can accomplish things they can literally use these God-given gifts that they have and so World Vision spends between roughly about 15 years in a poor community walking alongside them providing some of the inputs that are beyond their reach so we'll drill a 300-foot-deep borehole and we'll bring water sanitation and hygiene education to the community. But after that, the community has to manage the borehole. They have to learn how to repair it. They, they often collect a small fee for use of the water so that they have a, a kitty that they can use to, for repairs and even expansion programs. Um, there's a water committee set up. And we do this across all of these domains. We have savings groups. We have mother's nutrition groups. We have midwife training. Uh, we have youth uh, leadership development uh, classes and and exercises Um, and over those years these communities come alive Mm -hmm. and the children get healthier uh, they're participating in the community the community is thriving and it's kind of the theory that a rising tide lifts all the boats and that's world vision's approach and it's quite unique most charities that focused on international work do one thing You know, they build houses, they do health care, Doctors Without Borders, they do food, they do microloans. But you can't solve the puzzle if you only do one thing. And so our approach has developed over 65 years, uh, tested and trial and error, we've made a lot of errors. We've we've learned a lot over those years. And we actually believe we have a methodology uh, that works and it's bathed in a biblical worldview of uh, how God created us to interact with our environment, to interact with our neighbors. Uh, and it's based on a, a philosophy of gener- generosity and compassion for one another. And uh, we want to see communities that are helping one another uh, succeed. And, uh, and I've been all over the world, 60 countries to see it, and it's just amazing what happens. You saw it in Zambia. Yeah,
0: and so I, I stalked you on the Internet. And, uh, and, and you said something in, in, in a speech you were given that I, I had to sit there and think about this. And in the good way, the difference is being made. So you're seeing good, and you're seeing bad, but in the good, here's what you said. Uh, more people have been lifted out of poverty in the last 25 years than ever before. Unpack
1: that. Yeah. So most of you probably believe that global poverty is a bottomless pit. It's a hole that we'll never fill. Um, and things are getting worse, not better. You're absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, that statement is true. More people have escaped extreme poverty in the last 25 years than any time in the history of the human race. Um, just in my tenure at World Vision, you know, 18 years now, I've seen child mortality. So in 1998, about 30,000 children died every day of preventable causes diarrhea, uh, a respiratory infection, uh, an abscess tooth, preventable causes. Uh, but they had no access to health knowledge or medical attention, and so, and some of it was you know malnourishment, those kinds of things. Um, today, that 30,000 number—if you can imagine—30,000 children under five dying every day. Uh, today, it's about 16,000, so it's almost been cut in half in the last 18 years. If you go back to the 1970s, it was 40,000 children a day. Maternal mortality uh, in childbirth, uh, pregnancy is has often been a death sentence for a woman in the developing world, because they have to give birth without any doctor in a mud hut with a dirt floor. And they know nothing about sanitation, they know nothing about safe childbirth. Um, So now maternal mortality's been cut in half in the last 20 years. And I'll give you one more statistic, because there's a lot of them. Uh, Access to clean water. I've met 75-year-old men and women who never once in their life have taken a hot shower never once in their life had the luxury of washing with clean water or drinking clean water. Instead, they walk five miles each way in the hot sun with a jerry can that weighs about 60 pounds when it's full, and they carry it back and forth, and the children do the same. Um, 2.8 billion people, half the world's population in 1990, had no access to clean water. Half the world's population, something we just take for granted. Um, In the last 25 years, two billion of them have now got access to clean water. There's less than three quarters of a billion left that, that need water. Uh, so again, tremendous progress has been made uh, against extreme poverty. So what I'm saying is the work you're supporting is working. It is actually working in the world. And ABC, NBC, CNN, they don't cover it. it, it it's the, the biggest good news story that's happening in the world today. Um, and tremendous strides are being made. We believe we can eliminate the most extreme forms of poverty by the year 2030. So, in most of our lifetimes, we'll be able to see the end of the worst, brutal, grinding poverty defined by living on less than a dollar and a quarter a day, um, you know, in, in abject poverty. And that's going away in the world.
0: So, you travel the world all over. In fact, I know recently you were in the Middle East and so there still are big issues. What are the big issues that most of us have never seen? And, and like you said, not even being yeah. covered well. You're seeing big issues of the day and even in specific areas. What are they?
1: Well, I think one thing I'd like to spend just a couple of minutes on is the, the refugee crisis in the Middle East. So you've seen a lot of the news about you know, the, the Syrian civil war, the rise of ISIS inside of Iraq, inside of Syria. The Russians are involved in the Syrian conflict. Iran and Saudi Arabia are on the periphery. I mean, it's a, it's a catastrophe that's going on right now in the Middle East, and um, there's been a lot of rhetoric in our country, there's been fear of terrorism, um, there's been a lot of political discussion about we've got to keep the refugees out, um, and yet there are 15 million people now that have had to flee their homes in terror for fear of their lives in Syria and Iraq. and. I'm just gonna, that's a big number, hard to get your mind around. I want you to, I'm gonna put it in American terms. I want you to imagine if over the next three years, every American, man, woman, child, elderly, infant, in the following cities had to flee their homes uh, because of violence. San Diego, Dallas, San Jose, Albuquerque, Austin, Jacksonville, San Francisco, Indianapolis, Columbus, Fort Worth, Charlotte, Detroit, Seattle, Denver, Washington DC, Pittsburgh, Boston, Nashville, Baltimore, and Rapid City. That's 15 million people. That's 15 million people. Imagine that every family in every home had to run from violence, and you have an understanding of the human suffering that's going on because of this crisis. And remember, they're running from the same kind of violent terrorism that we fear in our country. That's what they're running from. I wanna tell you just A story of one girl, uh, a little girl named Haya. I visited Jordan a couple years ago. Jordan is one of the places that's taken about 700,000 refugees. Lebanon's taken between one and two million refugees. Turkey's taken over two million. We've taken 2,675, by the way. Um, and, And again, I don't think the answer is to bring them all here. The answer is how can we help them right where they are? Because where they are right now they're living in tents they're living without food they're living without water they're living without medical care so how can we help them right where they are which is what world vision is doing haya had written me a letter uh which she stood up and read to me and uh, and this is an excerpt i think she'd be happy if i read it she said peace to you i am talking on behalf of the syrian children and i'm calling on you the people of the other world have you ever thought of the children of Syria, my country, Syria. She went on to say in that letter, please help, my father was killed, I loved my father so much, now I'll never see him again. Then, if that weren't bad enough, I'm already in tears. I cry when I watch The Biggest Loser, so, you know, I, I, I have kind of a tender heart. But Haya, she said she'd written me a song that she wanted me to sing. and. Uh, this was were, this were the lyrics from her song. She, sa- she sang, Syria is in pain, Syria is bleeding, Syria is crying for her children. Her children were her candles and they have faded out. Now we are all everywhere outside Syria. We're crying and Syria is crying because her children are missing. Syria misses her people, the children. And uh, that's an excerpt from the letter and there's some other... And she asked, have you ever thought of the children of Syria? Which I think is the question, uh, maybe Jesus is asking his church right now, have you ever thought of my children in Syria who are suffering right now? 80% of the refugees are women, children, and the elderly. And uh, But I, one other thing I want you to see, and World Vision is working in all five of the most affected countries. We're working inside Syria at some risk. We're working inside Iraq. We're working uh, in Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey, so all five of the most affected countries with incredibly courageous and dedicated staff. Um, But what an opportunity to demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ in the dead center bullseye of the Islamic world. What an opportunity God has given us. And beyond that, the indigenous church, the Syrian church, the Iraqi church, the Lebanese church, the ancient church of the Holy Land they're overwhelmed by this refugee crisis and they need our help. So I just want you to know that World Vision is responding. We're responding aggressively. Um, we're partnering with some churches who wanna help and, and help other churches in the Middle East. And it's the greatest humanitarian crisis of our time. Yeah. And uh, I'm just trying to encourage churches to care more about it uh, and to learn more about it because there's, there's a lot we can do to help uh, the people in that region. I remember you and I
0: were talking that you know, sometimes when you see a, a news report, it quickly gets put into this is just a political issue. The whole idea of how many and who do we let into our country. Yeah. And we neglect even what the Bible teaches us about in Matthew 25 that you even give some yeah. attention to. Uh, I think it's deeper than a political issue or even a who comes in and who goes out. Talk to us a little bit about what that means. You gave time to it, Matthew 25. Yeah. You gave time to what the Bible teaches us.
1: Well, I, I've been calling this a Matthew 25 moment for the American church. And uh, in fact, I'm preaching a sermon next week in my own church back in Seattle, and that's the title of my sermon, mm-hmm. a Matthew 25 moment. And if you think about Matthew 25, uh, just to jog your memory, it's that that great scene of the final judgment where uh, uh, Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats at the final judgment, and he says, I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was sick and you cared for me. And Think about the refugees. I was hungry. I was thirsty. I was a stranger. I was sick. It, it, it's like a Matthew 25 listing of the things that Jesus was saying. And uh, the, the, the thing that makes me shudder a little bit about Matthew 25 is Jesus uses this criteria to separate the sheep from the goats, right? Because he says to the goats on his, his left, he says, depart from me into the, you know, the, the hell that was created for you. Because I was hungry and you did not give me to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me to drink. I was sick and you did not care for me. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. So he, he kind of has this uh, scary judgment scene. Uh, but what he emphasizes in the middle of that is his expectations of the church. He expects us to feed the hungry, to care for the, uh, the sick, the, 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 you know, to give water to the thirsty, to welcome the stranger. That's an expectation of his church. And my theology says you know we're not saved by works but works are the result of our being saved you know the we are saved for a purpose we're saved to do good works as ephesians says created in advance for us to do and uh and and jesus is saying you know the people that are really my followers are all about these issues uh and if they're not all about these issues they may not be an authentic follower of 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 jesus christ so it's uh Matthew 25 is just both an inspirational passage showing how much uh, Jesus is associated with the poor and the broken in our world and how much he expects his church to respond. Um, But he also kind of says, boy, there's consequences for people that maybe they're the fire insurance Christians, right? Who think they've got a fire insurance policy, but they've never done one, they've never lifted one finger to care about the things that God cares about. well, so
0: anytime we talk about this, we give everybody an opportunity to join in, uh, to be a part of what's going on through World Vision, to literally go across the world while staying in the same place. And so uh, anyone can sponsor a child today, but but I'm going to turn it over to you. And for those considering sponsoring or being involved in however, I'll let you say whatever you want to say.
1: Well, thanks, David. And um, World Vision is an organization that over 65 years was really built by child sponsorship because... You know, Starting in 1950, our founder, Bob Pierce, went from church to church, and at that time, it was $5 a month to help support a child, to help fuel the work that World Vision does around the world. And the way this works very quickly is uh, you're in a community called Mwamba in in, in Zambia, northern Zambia, and I don't know the exact number, but we probably have about 3,000 children in that community that have been sponsored, and I think your church has sponsored 300, and we want to get some more done today. And uh, that money is pooled uh, as a budget for that community and it allows World Vision to stay there for 15 years, uh, to focus on the things that I mentioned, the puzzle pieces that I mentioned, uh, believing that if we can accomplish these things in this community and this whole community starts to get energized and stand on its own two feet, all the boats will be lifted by that rising tide, all the children will benefit. Uh, So your money doesn't go to that individual child directly. You know, I often say you can't drill a well for one child. You can't build a school or a clinic for one child. You do things in the community, understanding that all the people in the community will benefit from these activities and these um, accomplishments in the community. We, We look after the sponsored children to make sure that they're being cared for, and if they're sick, they get medical care, and we do pay attention to them individually. You can write letters to them but our our model of operation is that uh, it's about changing the community so that children no longer need to be sponsored uh, at the end. And many of you who have sponsored children, you will get a letter at the end of the project life about 15 years to say, thank you for your sponsorship. We no longer need your support in this community. They have graduated to, uh, and World Vision has withdrawn. When do you ever hear a charity say, we're done. We finished the work, mission accomplished. We're now leaving and we don't need your money anymore. Now, we will probably ask you to sponsor another child in another community where we haven't finished the work yet. But, so that's the way sponsorship works. I've seen the power of it in changing communities. Um, two stories about sponsorship, I'll make them quick. Uh, in the early 1980s, there was a two-year-old boy in uh, uh, Zambia uh, named Timothy Mwate. When he was two, he got polio and became crippled. He had no dad, a single mother, trying to raise him in really extreme poverty in Zambia. But World Vision came to that community and implemented our project models. And uh, he was one of the children that was sponsored. He was actually sponsored by a man from Colorado named Gordon Cowden. And uh, over the years, Gordon wrote letters to little Timothy encouraging him that, you know, he was going to overcome his handicap, he was going to stay in school and be a good student. Uh, and little Timothy gradually learned to walk again, um, he, he, as an adult, can walk with a cane. He, he, he was such a good student that he got accepted in a university in Zambia, and at one point during his education, he ran out of funding and was going to have to drop out, but his sponsor stayed with him and, and, and sent a little extra money, it was only a few hundred dollars to help him complete that semester. Well. The story ends in an interesting way because Timothy went on to get married and have several children, get a master's degree, and Timothy is currently the provincial head of gender and child development for Zambia, for the, mm-hmm. for the country of Zambia. He's a government official, and his job is to care for child development and child well-being throughout the nation of Zambia, this little throwaway child that had polio when he was two that most people would never give him any chance of of ever being a successful contributing adult in his country and now he leads gender and child development ministry in zambia gordon cowden had a a tragic end in 2012 he went to a movie in aurora colorado and was killed by the gunman that day in colorado and when timothy heard about this he he wept himself he wrote a letter to the family uh, about how much gordon had meant in his life. But you know, Gordon's influence continued after his death because he invested in another person. He invested in another person and paid it forward. And even though he, his life was taken, uh, Timothy goes on to change the world in his country because of Gordon's generosity. The second story's short, um, I'll tell it. Uh, we just learned that the new president of Guatemala, sworn in in January, was a former World Vision sponsored child. Uh, we always dream that someday our sponsored children will become leaders in their nation. Timothy Moate became a leader. Uh, this gentleman, his name is up there, um, Jimmy Morales, is the president of Guatemala now. And uh, he's an evangelical Christian, largely because of the work that World Vision did with him and his family back in the 80s uh, when he was growing up. Now. We're going to ask you to consider sponsoring one child or three children or however the Lord has blessed you. You can do more than one. Um, I just want you to, I'm going to lay it on pretty thick because I, I just, I'm the voice for these kids. If I had 200 of these little boys and girls from Zambia standing on the stage today, looking at this audience, wondering if somebody here was going to be their sponsor, you would not leave this auditorium without sponsoring every one of them because you couldn't say no to a little boy named Joseph who's three or a little girl named Agnes uh, who live in a community that has a lot of these problems, Uh, but they're not here this morning. Their pictures are here at the table in the back. And I I just really want to appeal to you to consider making this commitment to a child. It's about $1.30 a day to sponsor a child, which is I think 50 cents less than the cheapest cup of coffee at Starbucks. So it's the kind of thing a college student can afford to do uh, because they can find that much money in their budget. They can drink one less vente macchiato latte during the day. Uh, in fact, if you had a vente Ma- macchiato, you could sponsor three children for the cost of that. <laughs> but um, I, I just ask you to really prayerfully consider this. And if you already sponsor a child, consider taking another one. Um, we often tell our kids that actions have consequences, but there's a corollary to that inaction also has consequences. Gordon Cowden doesn't sponsor Timothy Moate, who knows how that story turns out. Uh, Timothy maybe never does complete his education, never does overcome his handicap, never does become the provincial head of gender and child development in Zambia. We don't know how we're paying it forward. We we, we plant seeds and we trust the Lord to water them and, and, and pay them forward. So just consider making that choice today. We've got the picture Folders, You're going to show them one in the back of the room.
0: They're really cool, Uh, not that they weren't cool in the first place or that they have to be cool, but when you open them up now, there's a little video of the child that you would be sponsoring and they will, you can hear that. It's pretty incredible, the effort that they've gone to to make sure that you and I are able to understand this is real. This is not just a picture and randomness, this is very real And, and I myself have been there to Northern Zambia. And seeing the kids, it's as real as real can be. Um, It's a privilege having you with us. Thanks thanks for coming. I have a request of you. Uh, We're about to go into one of the most significant weeks that we have as a church. where We're going to love on our city. We do every single week. Every every week we're doing things all over the city and globally. But this week we're going to do so in ways that we never do. We're amping it up. Would you mind praying for us as a church as we try to meet the needs locally and globally? I'd be glad
1: to, David. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great church you have here in Rapid City and in in Fountain Springs. Lord, a church whose heart has turned toward you, a church whose heart is filled with love for their community. Lord, we just pray for this coming week that they would be salt and light in Rapid City, that they would be uh, givers of hope and encouragement to people that may be discouraged, young people who are at risk, elderly people who need a helping hand, school teachers and administrators who are overwhelmed with their responsibilities and their shrinking budgets. Father, we thank you for this church. We, we, we pray that you would multiply them as a blessing in Rapid City. But Lord, not only in Rapid City, but around the world, 10,000 miles away in the Mwamba development project where thousands of little children are, are benefiting from uh, the work this church has already done in contributing to their well-being. Lord, we pray that you'd work in their hearts. We pray that everyone here would, uh, would hear your still small voice of what is that one thing that they can uniquely do? What is that one person that they can uniquely reach or touch or help? Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would help everyone here today to discover that, that calling, that purpose, that, uh, that next chapter in their lives in terms of how you plan to use them, their witness and their testimony for your glory. And Lord, we lift this up in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.